We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Welcome this evening back to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to jump right in. Uh, hopefully you have your Bible there to Matthew 28. We have seen the uh, authority of the Great Commission or the foundation of it. We've studied the assignment of it in several parts. Actually, I think this is part seven of our series here on the Great Commission. And the notes are updated on the website. If you're interested in looking at those, we're uh, towards page uh, 20, 21, 22 in those notes now. And um, so we looked at the assignment. Then we looked at the assurance of the Great Commission. Really, that has to do with the presence of the Lord with his people. And I'll say something about that in a different connection tonight. And now I wanted to talk just a little bit more about the resources that we have in accomplishing the Great Commission. Uh, whenever you have a job, or if you're a project manager, you have to say, what are my resources, right? I have raw materials, I have machinery, I have people, I have time, I have money, I have whatever. All those resources, do I have everything that I need? You know, when we're painting upstairs, we've got to know, do we have the brushes and the rollers and the right size rollers and handles and caulking and blah, 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 all that stuff. If we don't have it, you can be painting a long time because there won't be anything to put on the walls. So what resources do we have? And these actually are drawn a lot from Acts chapter 1, but I will touch on some here in Matthew 28. And um, one of the resources that we have in the Great Commission is exactly the same point that we made last time about the assurance of the Great Commission. The Lord being with us is an assurance, but also the Lord's presence is a resource in carrying out the Great Commission. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, in the work we are doing, Jesus is not absent. He's present. When, as we take the gospel of Christ to the world, as we take the gospel to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to the parents sitting next to us in the soccer game or the baseball game in the stands, or you know, you're sitting there and watching your child at his or her music recital, Jesus is present with you to help you minister the gospel. If you trust the Lord that he is with you, you will be empowered to share the news of Christ. And with that comes that all-encompassing authority and his clear terms of the assignment. Uh, so you have the authority, you have the assignment, you have his presence for an assurance, but also as a resource to help you. Um, I actually had something else on that, and I guess it, uh, it, yes, it actually comes later. I'm thinking I'm getting turned around because you know what the, what the Lord's presence actually is? He implements it by the presence of his spirit in us. And so we'll come to that in just a moment. So that's the first of the resources of the Great Commission. Jesus is with you right at your side, as it were. You have a resource to carry out the Great Commission that nobody else has for a resource to do any other job. 
He's not, you know, helping us in that same way with uh, political things or, I mean, the President of the United States has its seemingly unlimited resources at his disposal, but he doesn't have this resource. He doesn't have the Lord Jesus with him and the other resources that we'll talk about. One of the resources is, the second one on my list, the history of the resurrection. The, the facts are a powerful tool for making disciples. I was able to speak to a, a friend of ours in the, the church, a young man who visited with us earlier today, and I was making use of some of this material as I was studying it. I said, oh, I can share it with him while we're on the telephone call. And, um, you know, as they say, facts are stubborn things. The eyewitness facts of Jesus' cruel death and then resurrection from the grave is a powerful resource to bring people to understand that the Bible is truthful about what it says, not only in terms of the historical events, but also the spiritual things that are in there, uh, in the scriptures. Uh, and In Acts chapter 1, the scripture says, Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples over a period of 40 days. And then it says this in the King James and the New King James. It says, with many infallible proofs. Now, another way to translate that is, listen, with many unmistakable evidences. Infallible means unmistakable. You, what Luke is saying is you couldn't argue against it. There was no apparition. This was no hologram. They didn't have that technology back then. Uh, this was no figment of imagination, hallucination, or anything like that. It was infallible. It was unmistakable that he was alive. Now, if a man predicts that he will rise from the dead, and then he does it, that's a pretty bold... People make, people make a lot of bold claims sometimes, you know, but... Uh, you know, it's, I guess it's not bragging if you do it. Um, <laughs> well, I don't want to make light of it, but, you know, if somebody predicts that and then he actually does so, that's got to mean something. It's got to mean something. It's not just a curiosity to be left on your mental shelf for potential examination later. Do you understand what I'm saying with that? Just like, oh yeah, I heard this guy said he was going to rise from the dead and then hundreds of witnesses actually saw that he did it. Uh, just put that on the shelf. I'll think about it later. Especially that's a bad idea because the stakes are so high. I mean, the Lord said, this is about gaining or losing your soul. This is not playtime. It's not, it's, it's, you know, he's been in the afterlife. Yes, he's been there. So who else do you know who has been there? And come back to be able to tell you what it's about. Nobody. In fact, he made the afterlife. He existed before he came as a person. If you, you know, when you want to learn something, the best thing to do is go talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. You know? You don't come to... What, what's, a, what's a topic that, you know, if, if you want to know a little bit about electricity, you can come to me, okay? If you want to know a little bit about how to fix a car, you can go to Mr. Scarfo. But if you want to know about, 
I don't know. Uh, Astro OB Gin Care. Don't ask Mike about that, right? <laughs> you don't go to a plumber to learn about, you know, how what's going to happen when you have your baby and stuff like that. So you go to somebody who knows what they're talking about. Jesus knows what he's talking about. He's been there. He's done that. He's, he's conquered death. And so that's a resource for us. You have that to share with other people. Now, of course, the society today has done so much to inoculate people against the truth. Like they think, well, resurrection doesn't happen, or we came from you know, the slime and amoebas in the initial part of the world or whatever. And they get you thinking on those lines, and everybody goes off in this crazy direction. So yes, you're going to sound a little bit uh, different to your friends, but how many things that they have heard in the media today, modern times, or over the course of history, how many things have they learned that have been false? People always used to teach that the earth was flat. Well, that was dumb, but that's what they taught, and that was kind of a standard thing, but it was wrong. So it is wrong that you know everything came from nothing times nobody, or whatever that saying goes. You know, It just doesn't happen that way. Anyway, so Jesus presented himself alive. His resurrection is a powerful tool that calls forth our attention to the things of God. Number three, and for this I will actually turn my Bible over to the book of Acts, um, and you can too if you want, in Acts chapter 1. It's uh, telling us in verses 4 to 5 something significant here in Acts 1. Um, this is where he presented himself alive after many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And verse 4 says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So at his ascension, the Lord Jesus told the disciples to stay in Jerusalem for a while, wait, it turned out to be about 10 days, and they waited for the promise of the Father, which was the baptism of the Spirit. And with that divine intervention in their lives, they would experience special enabling for the task that Jesus had assigned them. So it's kind of like, okay, you have the Great Commission, uh, but the assembly line is not going to start for 10 more days. You have to wait until the shipment of the Holy Spirit comes into the factory before you can get the machines rolling. And so they had to wait. And while they were waiting, they were worshiping and they were praying and all of that. And then this divine intervention comes in Acts chapter 2. And uh, the whole, really the whole chapter 2 in Acts tells what happened when they received the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in tongues and speak of the wonderful works of God. And, and this all happened very spectacularly in that first opening day of the birth of the church. And it kicked off the new era of the church. But they had now the resources they needed to go forward and do this. Now, it doesn't happen, the Spirit of God coming in your life doesn't happen in that spectacular, miraculous kind of way. It's miraculous, but it's not this kind of externally visible way that it happened at Pentecost. The presence and baptizing ministry of the Spirit is a quiet, personal, um, 
internal work. Of course, it has major results in the outward working of your life, right? When the Spirit of God comes in, the sin tends to go out. It doesn't continue to, you don't continue to behave in a poor manner. Your life has changed. Now, with the presence of the Spirit of God, you get certain things. And I can't go through the whole list now because actually we'd go into a whole study of the doctrine of the Spirit. But let me mention this. In the extreme example of persecution, what did Jesus say the Spirit would do to to help you? If they bring you before magistrates and judges, don't worry about what you will say because what? The Spirit will, will help you to know what to say in that time. Let's, uh, let me go back to like Luke chapter 12, and I'll just read a verse there. See if you can keep up with me here. Luke 12, 11. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what to say. So that's one of the works of the Spirit of God in the life of a believer when they're faced with extreme persecution. And uh, that has certainly been the case many, many times over the decades, over the centuries since Christ's ascension. But also the Spirit of God works to uh, work inside of each believer to transform us from one glory to the next glory. Remember that passage in the Bible? 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18, that he's... Trans, we're being transformed from one glory to the next, even by this, as the Spirit of the Lord or by the Spirit of Christ, to Christ-likeness, one level to the next, to the next, to the next. Now, this, this is not the same as the Spirit coming to indwell or Spirit baptism, but invariably, the work of transformation or sanctification follows the work of the initial indwelling and baptism of the Spirit in the life of a Christian. And this includes not only a behavioral transformation, but also a transformation of character, of thought, of attitude, so that you think and speak differently than you did before you became a Christian. And this helps you to testify about Jesus to others. So you have the presence of the Spirit, the transforming work of the Spirit. You have His help in speaking, even in extreme conditions, and in Acts chapter 1.8, it says, um, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, don't be offended, please. But some among general or broad, broader Christianity believe that the Spirit's presence is demonstrated by all kinds of external manifestations like speaking in gibberish or doing all kinds of these things, you know, holy rollers kinds of stuff. They think that the fullness of the Spirit is expressed that way, that the work of God's Spirit, the power of God's Spirit, that it involves working of miracles and so on. But can you just look carefully at this text? Does it say any of that? What does it say is going to happen when people receive power by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This isn't the way the verse is usually taken, but I'm just saying I think it does imply this. You're going to be witnesses. 
you're not going to do all kinds of crazy stuff and jumping around in church and yelling and, and you know, all kinds of things. You're going to witness for Christ. That is how the power of the Spirit of God is evidenced in the life of a Christian person. That's power. That, that's not you know, fun and games kinds of stuff or personal edification or, or entertainment or something like that. So they were going to be witnesses to the whole world. And it's being a testifier of Christian truth, not being a miracle worker that authenticates somebody as having the power of God's Spirit in their life. The power was manifest in Peter's life. You remember? You know, he's, he's turned from a fisherman unlettered in his academia to, you know, from, from a man who denied the Lord with his mouth three times to suddenly, 50 days later, preaching a sermon which resulted in the salvation of thousands of souls. And I'd say he gave a pretty good sermon, <laughs> you know? Uh, not half bad, right? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say so. And then later on, there are more thousands of people being saved in that church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, more preaching. Acts chapter 5, standing up against persecution from the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 8, going to Samaria and uh, confirming the receipt of the gospel there. Acts chapter 10 and 11, going to Cornelius and Caesarea and bringing the gospel to... I mean, this is a total transformation here. This is the power of the Spirit of God working through Peter's life. And then from Acts 13, you see the Spirit of God separating Paul and Barnabas for the work that he's prepared for them. And then from the rest of Acts, from chapter 13 to 28, it focuses a lot on the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and all their goings-on with the missionary work. That's the work of the Spirit of God. That's what the power of the Spirit of God looks like. It looks like starting churches. It looks like teaching the Bible, strengthening disciples, appointing leadership in the churches, making disciples. That's what it looks like. All right, now, um, i got to keep moving. Otherwise, Brother Scarfo is going to tell me I'm talking fluff here. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting after him. Um, the fourth resource is that you have the Lord's instruction recorded in the Bible, which is essential to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, I'll just quickly go over this. John 14 indicates that the Lord promised the Spirit of God is going to bring everything that I told you to your remembrance. Now, if you're just a regular old person and you had spent three years with somebody and you hadn't taken detailed notes like I probably would want to, you know, if I could just have my computer and type all the stuff the Lord taught me, that would be great. And then he says, you've got to take everything that I've taught you and you've got to teach it to a bunch of other people. You'd be like, Bleh. I forgot half of it, Jesus. Don't worry. He says, I'm going to send my spirit, and he's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I taught you. Whew. Good, I've got help. <laughs> That's great. And for us, we have help because we have the Bible, which he's given to through the apostles, and now it's here. So we don't have to worry like, uh-oh, I forgot everything I was supposed to know. Or just go back and review your Bible. It's right in there for you. For all the future generations, they passed it on to us in the 27 New Testament documents that are in our Bible. Number five, the fifth resource that we have in carrying out the Great Commission is the spiritual gifts that the church has been given uh, 
you know, we've explained numerous times these don't include the miraculous gifts, revelation, and that sort of thing. They're more mundane, but no less important. Teaching, administration, faith, generous giving, exhortation, leadership, showing mercy, all the variations of those, that's what he's given to the church in order to move his gospel forward. Spiritual gifts given to the church. And then I think I have one more resource here. Yeah, and then a couple other mentions. But the one other resource that he's given to us is this. Every member of the body of Christ is a resource in carrying out the Great Commission. That means you are a resource when the project manager, his name is Jesus, is looking at all the things that he has to do his work, he's including you in that list of resources. And by the way, you weren't in that resource list to begin with, right? I mean, he knew you were going to be there, but you were over here, a child of wrath, destined for destruction just like the others, and he went pluck and brought you over, put you right into his factory. Now you're making disciples with his team. You're, you're, on the, you're, you're employed by the Lord. You're part of his family, part of his body, and now a part of the resources in carrying out the Great Commission. Now God has not only given gifts to people, that's what we talked about just before, spiritual gifts, but he's also given people to the church so that they can be trained and work together and grow and build up the church. That's Ephesians chapter 4. Remember that? God's given apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the, for the building up of the body of Christ, you know, for the training, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. That's the flow of it. He's given us each other to do that. So we're all an important part of doing this. You read in the Bible in Luke 10 of the Lord. He sent out his disciples. How did he send them out? Two by two. Kind of like Noah brought the animals into the ark two by two. You know, maybe Peter and John go off together, James and Andrew or whoever. But what does that mean? When, some guy, when one of the guys gets stumped talking to people, the other guys, he's just perfectly outfitted to be able to jump into the conversation and share something that, will be meaningful to the gospel in their contacts with people. So it's not just that there's strength in numbers, but there's strength in giftedness. We have each other as a resource in making disciples. You know, we might have a hard time speaking to a certain person, but our friend over here may have no difficulty at all speaking to that same person. You know, you might have used up all your capital, as it were, with a person, with your relative, and this other person comes along and they talk to them and say what you've been saying to them in different words and they believe. And you're like, why didn't they believe what I said? <laughs> you know, Because you don't have the gift that whatever that way is that you have that God has arranged for you. There are somebody in this world that I suspect you might be the only person who could talk to them. I don't know, but maybe. You've got to remember that. It could be. You might be the one to reach somebody for the gospel. You know, we read in the Bible of the church gathering and bearing one another's burdens, rejoicing together. And when somebody comes into the church, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, you know, hopefully he'll be convicted by seeing you all worshiping God there. 
because everybody's variously gifted in the worship and work of the church. Now, there's some things that are not resources for doing the Great Commission. Anything that hinders the progress of the gospel is not a resource. Certainly, you know, thinking of making disciples as an assembly line, anything that gums up the, the, uh, I was going to say treadmill, (laughs) the conveyor belt, anything that gums up the conveyor belt is not a resource that helps you make disciples come out of the end of the assembly line. So get rid of all that stuff. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily entangle us and let us run with patience that race that is set before us. Lay that stuff aside. The disciples uh, thought about another thing that maybe was a kind of a resource or a connection. They said, you know, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, the Lord taught them a lot about the kingdom, and it's, I love it. It's a fascinating topic, but we're not in it. We're still waiting for it. And so the Lord said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has, you know, put in his own power. In other words, what he's saying is, don't concern yourself with that. Concern yourself with your business. You know, too many of us, we, we want to know everything about everybody else's business. We want to know everything about God's business. Well, what about our business? What about we're concerned about? Our little corner, our little room, our home, our family, our church. You know, don't worry about every other church. Well, how they're doing things wrong, you think, and they need to be corrected and all of that. No, you concern yourself with yourself and uh, the, work, the assignment that God has given to you. Uh, we don't also need supernatural things, supernatural acts to carry out the Great Commission. Um, those things aren't available to us, and you know, we don't need them. Some people say, oh, you need to do miracles. You need to speak in tongues. You need to heal people. Listen, my friends, the, the Bible says the gospel is the power of God to salvation, not all these other spectacular things. The gospel is the power of God. You give somebody the gospel, you've given them something a lot to chew on, you know, brain chewing, thinking about the gospel. That's important. Politics doesn't save anybody. Benevolence doesn't save anybody. You know that? You can do all kinds of social action and have soup kitchens and all that sort of stuff, food closets and pantries and everything, but if you don't tell anybody the gospel, they're just going to go out with more food and more clothing than they came in with, but nothing else. Because the power is not in that. The power is in the gospel. Well, we have authority. We have assurance. We have resources for this work, this assignment that's unmatched. It's... uh, You know, as I said earlier, not even the President of the United States has these kinds of resources to carry out his job. Okay, these things that we have are powerful allies in carrying out a task which would otherwise be impossible. Can you imagine? With no Spirit of God, no Word of God, no presence of Christ, (laughs) start taking these things away and you think, how would I, how, how could we do this? You couldn't. You couldn't, but even though we have these things, these resources don't necessarily make the work easy because it's hard, right? But they do make possible what would otherwise be impossible. And so we thank God for the resources that are built in to our system for doing the Great Commission. And that is what the Great Commission is. It's a great assignment for us.
to carry out. And I wanted, I wanted to spend a long time on this, seven, seven parts now, I guess, seven messages, in order to emphasize to us that's our job. If you don't know your job description, it's pretty miserable, isn't it? You don't know what to do, but we know what to do. Problem is, we don't go back to the, what do you call that document? The job description? You know, the one page or two pages? We don't keep going back to that and reminding ourselves, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what our church is supposed to be doing. Here we are, making disciples, training them, teaching them. And so I hope that you'll, you know, you and I together will keep going back to this, putting it into practice and remembering you know, we've, many of us have advanced a great deal in the faith, but there are a whole lot of people that aren't even there yet. You know what I mean? They're not even in the faith. We need to help them. Father, we pray that you would help us to help them who don't know Christ yet. They um, find themselves in a dark place and uh, you've given us a great, big, mighty flashlight. Help us to shine it for them so that they can see the glorious gospel of Christ. We ask that you take these words about the Great Commission and help them to seal to our hearts that that's what our ministry is, that's what we're supposed to be about. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.